right, chapter 18 uh, of S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church uh, History. I'll be doing the reading and commentary today. Hey, Timothy Harris, uh, you are most welcome to uh, lurk. Anyway, chapter 18, The Approach of Dawn. And I'm going to put on some glasses. It is true that in nature it is darkest just before the dawn. Similarly, in the church, thick darkness prevailed during the close of the 15th and the first decades of the 16th century. There was practically nothing of the simple faith, the earnest hope, and the fervent love so characteristic of the church of the apostolic age. There was pomp and outward show in abundance, but worship was hollow and without true content. The ritual was mere formality, the preaching was sounding brass, the priests, with few exceptions, were selfish seekers of worldly pleasures, the people were abandoned to ignorance and superstition. Beautiful church buildings had been erected in the Middle Ages, of which the Cathedral of Cologne in Germany was one of the most magnificent. But within these buildings, the great truths of God's word were not preached. Sermons were little better than profane and vain babblings in the Latin language, which remained the official language of the church, although none but scholars understood it. No food was served to hungry, hungry souls. The greatest errors were taught, in addition to the two sacraments which Christ had instituted, baptism and the Lord's Supper, Rome had appointed five others, confirmation, penance, marriage, orders, and extreme unction. Uh, there's a footnote here, orders, the ordination of priests and consecration of nuns, extreme unction, the anointing with oil of a person thought to be about to die. Now, one of the things we need to remember was that the Roman sacramental system was designed to interpose the uh, the church between the uh, between men and God at every point. Uh, extreme unction, for instance, was a, a necessity because the idea was that um, you were constantly, uh, most Christians were constantly going through life gaining and losing their salvation in essence. So if we uh, we think of a line Okay, that uh, this is this is the salvation line. Okay, you're born below the salvation line because of original sin, obviously, and then you are baptized. This puts you above the the salvation line. If you were to die at that point, you go to heaven. Okay, they really do believe. Also, remember this: that baptism is the labor of regeneration. This is where uh, someone literally becomes a Christian and has their sins literally washed away. Okay, so the person is above the salvation line because of baptism, but then they sin and they lose their salvation. So they dip below it. Okay, they create a uh, they they commit a a mortal sin. A deadly sin. They're called mortal sins because they supposedly have the power to condemn you to uh, to hell. Now we know that the wages of sin is death, and that every uh, every sin deserves hell. But the uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually uh, ranks sins. Some sins are minor sins, um, peccadilloes. Some uh, they're venial sins, and then there are uh, there are sins that are uh, those mortal or deadly sins that will condemn you to hell. So anyway, so let's say you commit a mortal sin that puts you beneath the uh, the line. So what do you do? You uh, you go to confession, which they made into a sacrament. Uh, you confess your sins to a priest. He gives you penance, uh, which is another sacrament, and it pushes you above the um, uh, it pushes you above the salvation line again. And you can uh, you take the uh, uh, the mass, and that keeps you above the line. But then you commit another sin. You go, and so you keep popping up and and down. Uh, you know, so that's why you can't know at any point that you're definitely going to be saved because you could sin and lose your salvation. All right, there is no perseverance of the saints in Roman Catholicism. Well, what if a person dies, either is dying or actually has died, 
uh, at a point where they were below the line. They were below the salvation line. Well, what does the Roman Catholic Church do? They have this, uh, they have extreme unction whereby uh, oil is uh, applied to the, the head of the dying by a priest. And if they're still alive, they take them through an act of confession. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, the priest prays over the departed and uh, supposedly they are popped above the line again. Of course, they're going to end up uh, thousands of years in purgatory, another unbiblical uh, idea, but that, that really is uh, the system of salvation within Roman Catholicism. Most people don't understand that. But that is what was being um, uh, that was what was being taught in the Middle Ages. But the average uh, Roman Catholic peasant in uh, the Middle Ages didn't even understand that much because they couldn't read the Bible. They certainly weren't reading the official documents of the Roman Catholic Church. That was the doctors of the Church uh, were the only ones who could read that, and they didn't understand the service because it was all in Latin. It was literally all hocus pocus from the. Uh, uh, from the uh, the words that the priest uttered when elevating the host, hocus corpus man, this is my body. They didn't understand it. It was all hocus pocus. So, it's um, it was a it was a sad sad state, obviously. But God was not about to allow His church to remain in that state. Uh, it was also taught that at death the Christian passed into purgatory, a place for purifying his soul so that he might in time become fit to enter heaven. As for little children who died unbaptized, it was taught that there was a special place called Limbus Infantum, Limbus meaning border, provided for them, but into heaven itself they could not enter. Uh, I should note that they also created something called the Limbus Patrum. They, uh, there were so many of these uh, great scholars in the past that they wanted to uh, elevate out of hell uh, unbelievers and bring into uh, heaven. That would include people like Aristotle, for instance. And it was it was actually kind of critical that uh, that Aristotle be included <laughs> in the Limbus Patrum, that place that wasn't you know wasn't uh, hell but wasn't heaven either, because so much. Uh, after the work of uh, Thomas Aquinas especially, so much of Roman Catholic theology was founded on Aristotelian philosophy. It would be rather uh, unbecoming to be getting a lot of your uh, theology from somebody in hell, right? So anyway, but it was just, it was a mess. It was a horrible, horrible mess. And uh, what most people don't understand is it hasn't gotten better because the Roman Catholic Church can't admit mistakes. It can't say we erred, the Pope erred. There was a mistake made. Uh, our theology was wrong, so we're going to go back and redress it. Uh, they're, um, uh, they are supposedly speaking ex cathedra from the, they're infallible. They can't make a mistake, so if they did make a mistake, they can't admit it. So the Roman Catholic theology just piles up and up and up and up. In any event, prayers to the saints, and there were almost as many saints and saints' days as there were days in the year were encouraged, for many of them supposedly had a surplus of good works with which they might benefit people on earth. In the homage paid to, the, uh, to saints or to Mary, the mother of Jesus, people forgot the worship due to God alone. Every business, calling, age, and station had its patron saint. Nations had their patron saints. And for every misfortune or sickness, there was some special mediator to whom one could apply for relief. It was forgotten that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's 1 Timothy 2.5. Men expected to obtain salvation through baptism, attendance at mass, indulgences, and good works. 
Heathenism had vanished, but the superstitions of heathenism were retained. People believed in witchcraft, fairies, and good and bad omens. At Canterbury in England, as in most cathedrals, it was incredible what a world of bones, skulls, chins, teeth, hands, fingers, and whole arms were preserved as sacred relics. Shrines, such as that of Thomas Becket, were visited by multitudes, and the priests or monks in charge of them would produce relics by the hundred. For example, a finger of the martyr Stephen, hair of Mary Magdalene, blood of the apostles John and Thomas, a lock of the Virgin Mary's hair, a fragment of Christ's seamless robe. In Gloucestershire was shown Christ's blood in a vial. To support the doctrine of transubstantiation, bleeding wafers were here and there exhibited. Imposture, in fact, was everywhere. The power of the church was in part built upon it, and by it the church became enormously wealthy, as the simple-minded parted with their money. Dark, very dark, is the picture of the church in the early 16th century. But the day had at last arrived when God was to demonstrate his power and to begin a thorough reform of his church. He himself came with his fan in his hand to purge his floor thoroughly, to gather the wheat into his garner, and to burn up the chaff with fire unquenchable. This great event in history is known as the Reformation. It is the most important epoch in the history of the world since the events of which we read in the New Testament. Various causes were usually given for the Reformation. The real power lay in the gospel of grace and the preaching of it, and the direct cause was the raising up by God of a number of men whom he had chosen to take the leading part in this work. Then, too, there were remote or external causes by which the work was prepared and the execution made easier. This is God's method of governing the realm of nature. He, the sovereign and omnipotent, works out his purposes in all their tremendous intricacy through cause and effect, and he applies the same method in matters that concern salvation and his church. One of the most important of the external causes of the Reformation was the movement known to us as the Renaissance, or the rebirth of learning. It prepared the minds of men to throw off the loke of illiteracy and serfdom, the agents by which the clergy kept the masses of men under their authority. One of the foremost men of the Renaissance was Erasmus of Rotterdam, 1466 to 1536. He was the son of a priest, and priests were denied by the church the right to become fathers, and educated by the brethren of the common life at Deventer and at The Hague. The brethren existed to promote piety, to provide education for boys in need, and to engage in good works generally. One of their pupils was Thomas Akempis, who wrote a famous book of devotion called The Imitation of Christ. Now, one of the things that uh, they mention there is uh, priests were forbidden to have... Um, children. And unfortunately, the clergy um, uh, created quite a few illegitimate children in the Middle Ages. Uh, if you were high enough up the uh, the ladder, so to speak, your, your child would be promoted to some office in the church. The Borgia Pope, uh, for instance, Alexand uh, Alexander, um, managed to move, obviously, his son, uh, Cesare, his illegitimate son, up the ladder and so on, his other illegitimate children, and that was very common. Uh, but if you were uh, a parish priest and you um, you fathered a child uh, with a, a, another woman, you couldn't admit this was your child, uh, and unfortunately that woman would, uh, would, would have the opprobrium of the community because having children out of wedlock at that point was was a great um, shame and scandal as well as a sin. And so unfortunately what happened was uh, often these uh, children of priests would end up uh, in orphanages and in just a terrible destitute condition. So um, Erasmus was actually very, very blessed to be taken in uh, by the brethren of the common life. 
Although forced to enter a monastery, Erasmus was afterwards set free from the usual vows, and he resolved to devote himself to study in the pursuit of knowledge. He attended several of the chief universities of Western Europe and spent a considerable time at Oxford, where he met a scholar named John Collette, who persuaded him to turn his attention from secular scholarship to biblical studies. Yet Erasmus, though a man of profound learning, was not really a reformer. He was not without a Christian uh, consciousness, but possessed neither the purity nor strength of faith necessary to uh, be uh, uh, necessary in a reformer. He was, however, a promoter of the Reformation in two ways. First of all, he exposed the abuses in the church by writing against moral corruption of all ranks and by unsparingly denouncing the ignorance, idleness, and dissoluteness of the monks. In one of his books, called ironically, In Praise of Folly, he tells how most men rested their hopes for salvation on a strict conformity to religious ceremonies, little thinking that the judge of all the earth at the last day would say, who hath required these things at your hands? In this book we read, It will be pretty to hear the pleas before the great tribunal. One will brag how he mortified his carnal appetite by feeding only upon fish. Another will tell how many days he fasted and what severe penance he imposed upon himself. Another will produce on his own behalf as many ceremonies as would load a fleet of merchantmen. Another will plead that in threescore years he never so much as touched a piece of money except he fingered it through a pair of a thick pair of gloves. Another will testify his humility by producing his sacred hood so old and nasty that any seaman had rather stand bareheaded on the deck than put it on to defend his ears in the sharpest storms. Another would tell his judge he has lost his voice by singing holy hymns and anthems, and still another that he has forgotten how to speak by having kept perpetual silence in obedience to the psalmist's injunction to take heed lest he should offend with his tongue. But the Savior will set aside their fine excuses by saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verily I know you not. The second contribution made by Erasmus to the Reformation was his editing of the first printed Greek New Testament in the year 1516. This called scholars' attention to the true gospel of Christ and to that gospel as explained by the apostles of Christ. It reminded men of the way in which the church was founded and taught them the essential requirements of God. Above all, it taught that salvation was by grace and not by works. The Bible was, as it were, taken from under a bushel and placed upon a candlestick to shed its light in the world of men. The scriptures were soon translated into various European languages, and the printing press, invented about 15, uh, sorry, 1454 in Germany, made them available in large numbers at a price which many were able to afford, as Erasmus stated in his most famous lines. I would to God that the plowman would sing a text of the scriptures at his plow, and that the weaver would hum them to the tune of his shuttle. I wish that the traveler would beguile the tediousness of his journey with this pastime. All communication of the Christian should be of the scriptures. And we might note that that should still be the case. Uh, It should be the case that every single day we are getting the scriptures within us, uh, and that the church, uh, in addition to singing uh, the uninspired hymns, I'm not going to say much for the, a lot of the spiritual songs today, but uh, we should still be singing the Word of God in the Psalms. Moving on. In these ways, Erasmus helped to introduce Reformation, but he lacked the convicting power of truth. He loved peace so well that he would sacrifice a part of truth rather than cause dissension. 
The reformer Luther said of him, he had pointed out the evil, but he is unable to point out the good and to lead into the promised land. Perhaps he will at length die with Moses in the fields of Moab, for he does not lead into the better studies of God's word, those which concern piety. Yet the saying too is memorable that Erasmus laid the egg, but Luther hatched it. In other words, Erasmus, by his literary works, prepared the way for the Reformation, but it was the work of others to reestablish the truth of God through the scriptures in the souls of men. With Erasmus, dawn set in. With the latter reformers, the light of divine truth reached its zenith. And that's true. Men like Gutenberg and Erasmus were not seeking to produce a doctrinal reformation in Europe, and yet through their work, one in producing the printing press, the other in creating the first translation of, or the first widely available translation of the scriptures, um, this was a, a great work of God in, in setting, the, uh, setting the scene for the Reformation. We are uh, a people who are blessed in the fact that the Lord uh, goes about his work in a, uh, in a wonderful way, preparing everything for uh, the great movements. Uh, and so we'll see that later on when we see the way that he prepared the ground for the Great Awakening that occurred in England and America in the early 1700s, early and mid-1700s, I should say. Uh, but we, we remember that he used means in doing that. Uh, for instance, the Great Awakening was prepared uh, with prayer, the prayers of the saints. We should be still uh, praying about that. Jane Walker says, I have wondered for quite some time about Erasmus. There are so many opposing writings about him. Yeah, um, He and uh, Luther obviously got into it over the, uh, the freedom and the bondage of the will. Erasmus did not believe that our, our wills were uh, totally depraved and thus inclined hopelessly towards the evil. Luther rightly and biblically did. He understood that Ephesians 2, when uh, the word says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it didn't mean we were a little sick in our trespasses and sins. It meant that we were dead, but Erasmus was definitely a uh, free willer. He believed that, uh, that men could uh, make use of uh, their, own, um, their own natural abilities uh, in order to be saved, rather than uh, salvation being of the Lord and regeneration being necessary before somebody could come to faith. So um, Erasmus and Luther went back and forth on that particular um, uh, subject. Erasmus had some great insights, particularly when he was condemning the evil of the church, but Erasmus was, was no Protestant. Erasmus was no uh, reformer, uh, and he stayed within the pale of the Roman Catholic Church and was not excommunicated like Luther was. Uh, in any event, uh, we will learn more about the uh, Reformation tomorrow when we uh, turn our attention to chapter 19 Martin Luther the student and learn about the beginnings of the 16th century reformation in Germany, how God got that started.